This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The situation has become critical. The number of cases is rising. If we don't want our hospitals to be submerged, if we want to limit the number of deaths, we must act strongly right now. That is Quebec Premier Francois Legault after the province announced they had about 750 new cases of COVID yesterday. And they are really concerned about that, as they should be. They're cracking down big time, and we're going to find out how they are doing that. Joining us now is Global News reporter Braden Jagger-Haynes from Montreal this morning. Good morning, Braden. Good morning. Now, what exactly are they doing? Like, I understand they're picking cities, right? Like Montreal and Quebec City? Yeah, so it's going to be an alert system. Now, Quebec City, Montreal, and that greater Montreal region, and of course, the uh, land, uh, rather the uh, region that is that will be under a red alert, which is the new system of, uh, I guess it would be a lockdown. They're calling it a partial lockdown in this case. And this is sort of a deja vu from what we saw in the spring with the lockdowns. When it comes to businesses, bars, restaurants, casinos, and, uh, and, and those will be closed. Those will be completely shut down, only allowing delivery when it comes to restaurants and takeout for them. But the partial part is that they will not have closures of hair salons, storefronts, businesses, even gyms and schools. They will remain open and continue to operate. Okay, that sounds kind of strange then. Like, is this so? And it's just in the cities? The rest of Quebec is fine? It's only these three areas because of the, the amount of infections that are in those major areas. So those are the only ones that have been have those partial shutdowns. The rest are in the yellow zone. The red is the highest alert, and those are what those cities I mentioned. The yellow is where the rest of the province is at the moment, and it's teetering on that red zone, and that means Mm -hmm. that this possible shutdown could come to other areas as well. Okay, so how did this happen? Like, what is responsible for this resurgence or second wave? Well, it's funny. The the premier was asked that yesterday. Did he drop the ball specifically? And he said, no, it's not anybody's particular fault. Everything gradually reopened. After that first wave of COVID-19, businesses started coming back to normal. People sort of laxed off in terms of those restrictions. And this, of course, has always been the area of the province with the most COVID-19 infections since the beginning of this pandemic. And that's something that they have been tackling with and dealing with for some time. And he just says that it's sort of the laxing of, 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 of restrictions and people sort of coming back to normal that they wanted to have. And that is now going back to where we saw it in the first lockdown is people aren't allowed to do that. The hospital capacity rates are jumping high. And as you said, the COVID-19 rates, well, 700 yesterday. But just on Sunday, we had almost 900 Whoa. in a daily increase. And that's double from just two weeks ago. And that's because of community contagion. Oh, my God, that's huge. Uh, like, what about restaurant owners, though? How are they feeling about this? Yeah, they're the ones that are getting the, the lack of a fair shake in a sense here. They're forced to close down only delivery and takeout. And they say that's not fair. They put in all this money and time to reopen their business, put up plexiglass and PPE, and they're not going to be able to make enough like mince meat in terms of only operating on that delivery service. Now, the province says they understand this is not easy for them to do this decision, and they are planning on compensating these uh, restaurant and bar owners with uh, some sort of compensation, but that has yet to be announced what exactly that means. But it's highly anticipated, and many of them are furious this morning. I can imagine, yeah. So, Braden, what is compliance like with the rules there? What has that been like in Quebec? That's uh, that's interesting. It's sort of a, a tale of two tales of when it comes to people following directives. There's some that are extreme in terms of keeping that social distance of two meters, mandatory masks inside public spaces. That is all being followed by most of the public, but there is that small few that was mentioned by the Premier yesterday as ones that are the rebel rousers, the ones that are causing this and making the situation worse. And he 
sort of made a plea to them directly. He even made a reference to the Tam Tams on Mount Royal just this weekend where people play the drums in this public park and there was no social distancing and that circulated online and that was a big issue. And he says he made a plea to those people specifically saying that we need to follow these directives and the only way to get back to some semblance of normal is if we follow these directives and that's what he's asking for people to do. So is it fair to say, do you think that people just maybe relaxed a little too much? That's pretty much what happened. Summer, the nice weather, people were back out, they you know, got on boat rides, went to parks. It's, it's, it was almost, it was almost a, a resurgence of that COVID-19 was bound to happen with all this. And, you know, the things come in the rearview mirror now, but it's back in the front. All right, Braden, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Braden Jagger-Haynes, Global News reporter in Montreal, talking about the new lockdown measures being put into place uh, in three kind of urban areas of Quebec, including kind of Montreal, Greater Montreal, Quebec City as well. I mean, it was end of August, I think, that the health minister in Quebec was actually, you know, congratulating people in Quebec, saying that they'd done such a good job. They had something like 90, 95 cases in a 24-hour period, and they figured that that was like, you know, really great. They had things under control. Contrast that with what Braden just told us. It's on the weekend. They actually had a 24-hour period where they had 900 cases. And yesterday was more than 700 cases. Uh, Hence, these lockdowns. And uh, it's going to be definitely difficult to go back to kind of the way things were there. But we'll continue to follow that story. This does feel like it has been the longest ever presidential election campaign that we have ever seen. And now, tonight, a big milestone. Tonight, it will be the first presidential debate between U.S. President Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee for President Joe Biden. So joining us to share his thoughts on this right now is Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada and co-author of The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, everyone. How important are these debates, Bruce? Like, do they really matter to voters in the United States? I would say incrementally they matter to some. But for the most part, we've, not, we've seen good and bad debates. Very rarely do they knock someone out. Um, but look, here's the deal. Less than maybe 5 or 6% of the people in the United States have not yet decided who they want for president. So at this point in time, it's all about each of the two sides getting their base out to vote and as many people out to vote. And from the president's perspective, he's trying to circumvent the vote for uh, the Biden team. But look, I think that this stage of the game is not about persuasion. It's about, you know, motivating your home team. Right. And so will this debate actually motivate anybody? I don't know. There's a lot of news that dropped in the last, you know, couple of days, uh, not the least of which is the president's taxes from The New York Times, which he has held back. And wow, I I can now understand why he held that back. It's 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 damning and it is going to be problematic for him. Now, my guess is he, he tends to lean into old lines. So he uses some of the same verbiage that he used in 2016 and before, and he yeah. just goes back to those over and over again. But I, so I, I'm, I, I think that this is going to be problematic for him tonight. I, I was wondering, though, about that, Bruce, is even with all those revelations, and boy, there are a lot of them in that information mm-hmm. there, will that convince everybody? Like, if you're already a Donald Trump supporter, I feel like you've already made your peace with whatever, you know, problems are there. Will that actually convince anybody that, no, I'm not going to vote for him? Hardcore supporters, I doubt it. I mean, look, to get the, the, the man has stood up in front of the American public and by independent news services lied more than 20,000 times. So, you know, if that didn't do it, if 205,000 deaths, uh, from a pandemic, which represent 20% of the world's fatalities, while we only have 4% of the population. If that didn't do it, you know, I, I don't know what does motivate or change some of those. So their, their hardcore supporters won't be motivated or changed by tonight. And what do you think some of the topics will be? What do American voters care about right now? Well, I think most importantly, they care about getting things back on track and we're off track. Um, I mentioned the pandemic with 205, 206 now thousand deaths in the United States, which, you know, it, the numbers are numbing, but we should be realistic. This is, these are real people with real families, real Americans. And 
I think this is impacting us. Number two, um, after getting the pandemic on shape, um, we need to get the economy in the right place. And knowing that there are tens of millions of Americans who are on monthly subsistence and they're not going back to the work that they previously had, what are we going to do to reorient the economy? Number three, clearly race. And I think both sides are going to probably be, you know, speaking on this. Uh, the president has been stoking racial divisions while Vice President Biden is trying to be the healer here in, you know, in the place that he's in. And clearly that's going to be an issue. And then, of course, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. But that that should eat up a lot of time in those three areas. You would, that's a lot of pressure then on, on a couple of debates. Uh, do you think this is, is this highly anticipated, would you say? I would say so. I mean, you know, I think people are going to, you know, get the proverbial popcorn out and, uh, and uh, the libation of choice and sit and really pay attention to this. Both the supporters of both sides rooting for their their team, uh, but also at the margin, those people who have not been as engaged yet, if you can believe that. But those people who have not been engaged yet, this may be the moment because this is going to be on all stations and, and clearly the talked about moment of this part of the campaign. This is fascinating because usually to me, the debates are to figure out policy issues, right? Like, oh, what is this person going to do on foreign policy? How would you deal with this country? How would you deal with this situation? This debate doesn't seem like it's going to be about that. Well, I think there are different kinds of policies. Obviously, the policy of health care and the policy of, you know, do you let the CDC, the FDA, the National Institute of Health determine the health care policies of the country? Or do you let the president do it? I think that that's clearly going to be a key topic. Americans, unlike Canadians, don't have access to health care. And now this administration is suing in the Supreme Court to begin dismantling even further the um, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. And so then you'll probably get into the Supreme Court justice issues as well. So you expect it to be a little contentious or a lot contentious? Um, I'm hoping that um, the the vice president maintains an even steady keel. Um, I looking at uh, Donald Trump, he's going to try to get in and rumble mm-hmm. and spar. You watched how he debated Hillary. You watch how he behaves on these quote unquote press conferences that he has every day on the coronavirus, which are just political brawls. So my guess is that the president who's behind eight to 10 points on national polls and with 30 some odd days left, he's going to get in there swinging. And uh, it, I, I think it's going to be an event worth watching. Now, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Americans in Canada, you're running out of time. If you want to participate in this, the best way to do it is to vote. And the best way to do that is to go to voteframabroad.org. You're able to vote. You have the right to vote. And we need it really bad for our democracy right now. So, you know, get get out your phone right after this. And while listening to the radio, go ahead to go to votefromabroad.org. All right. Good advice. Thank you, Bruce. Pleasure. Be well, everybody. Be healthy. You too. That's Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada. He's co-author of the book, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. Joining us to share his thoughts on the first presidential debate, which happens tonight. Yes, I have a feeling it's going to be very widely watched for sure. And we'll be talking about some of the reaction tomorrow. Well, in case you didn't know, today is World Heart Day. This is a day that serves as a reminder that cardiovascular disease is actually the number one cause of death on the planet. Here in Canada, though, it is number two after cancer. So our Nikki Reitmeyer decided to check in with Scott Lear. Now, Scott is a professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, and she wanted to know what is the most common cause of heart disease? The most common cause of heart disease, which tends to lead to heart attacks, is atherosclerosis. So blockage, plaque in the heart arteries that stops the blood from flowing and prevents your heart from getting enough oxygen. So that's the leading cause, and sometimes we'll call it ischemic heart disease as well. But heart disease does encompass a a wide variety of issues from heart rhythms to just the way that the heart is or isn't working. 
I think I know what the answer to this next question already is before I ask it. But when we talk about ischemic heart disease, that first category that you were discussing, the number one way to prevent it, I imagine, is exercise. Yeah, so there's uh, over the last 30, 40 years, we've learned that a lot of the risk factors or those factors implicated in getting ischemic heart disease can be modified and prevented. So some of the top ones include your blood cholesterol, blood pressure, um, whether you're active or not, uh, nutrition is involved, um, smoking, diabetes. So a lot of these things, and there's also psychosocial factors like stress, anxiety, depression, and a lot of these things can either be prevented or modified after the fact. Have we seen any changes in the rates of say, heart attacks through the course of the pandemic? Excellent question. And it's hard to know. The timeline is still pretty short in terms of collecting data and getting the information out. What we had noticed early on is actually um, in some places, there are some reports out of New York City and other places that were hit really hard in terms of the healthcare system. And Emergency room visits had gone down. We saw that also in the province of British Columbia. And also in other places, they found that a reduction in people presenting to the emergency room with heart attacks and stroke. And it's not because they were doing well. It's because people were delaying treatment, were probably hesitating to go to the hospital for fear of uh, contracting the coronavirus and getting COVID-19, it might come out in the months to come whether we've seen an increase, a uh, uh, minor blip, if anything, increase in deaths from heart disease during this time. We have been starting to learn actually that um, the virus does seem to lead to some heart damage. But again, this is all really new information and we won't know till we follow people. The other thing that uh, I think is important from a healthcare and heart disease point of view is that all around the world, uh, outpatient clinics and specifically to heart disease, cardiac rehab clinics shut down. And uh, some of them went to an online model. So they're continuing to see or engage with their patients, but a lot of them didn't. So people who are getting that care after the fact uh, they've had their heart attack, they're going through an exercise program, getting those risk factors managed. Now, in some areas, that's no longer available. And that might lead to greater risk of a second heart event for those patients as well. How have things changed over the years, you know, leading up to the pandemic? How were we doing with lowering rates of heart disease across Canada and lowering your risk of death as a result? Yeah, so we've been doing a good job in um, keeping people alive who have heart disease. So we have better treatments at the hospital. So if somebody gets to the hospital, has a heart attack, they're more likely to survive than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so steadily the death rates from heart disease have gone down. And more recently we've learned that the risk of having a second heart attack after your first one has gone down. And a lot of that has to do with uh, what I mentioned about the um, going to the hospital, better treatments as well, but also prevention therapies, uh, things like cardiac rehab that get people exercising, control of blood pressure, better nutrition, um, help with smoking cessation. So these things have made a, an impact. And in Canada, uh, heart disease is no longer the number one cause of death. But globally, heart disease still is the number one cause of death. So what do you recommend that people do to lower their risk of preventable heart disease? Or what do you recommend for those people who have a loved one who is at risk of a heart attack? Um, so the good thing is there's a lot of things that people can do from learning CPR. So if they witness somebody that's having a heart attack or cardiac arrest, CPR can actually save a person's life until the paramedics get there. Uh, being regularly active, the guidelines state getting a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes of 
at least moderate, so that would be a brisk walk type of activity per day. Limit the amount of processed and sugary foods you eat. Get your blood pressure checked. Uh, avoid smoking, whether um, if you smoke, try to quit. Avoid secondary, secondhand smoke uh, as well. And know the, the signs and symptoms of heart attacks, such as um, lightheadedness, nausea, sweating, um, pain around the chest, jaw, back, and arms. These can all be indications of somebody having a heart attack. It's all good advice, right? That's Scott Lear, professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Good symptoms to list there. People just have to know to respond when they feel any of that. This is not something we sought. This is something that's being imposed, uh, returning to a previous situation that we also felt was uh, uh, a bit heavy-handed for uh, the inland waters that our ferries travel in. That was a reaction a couple of weeks ago from John Horgan when it comes to the change that Transport Canada has made. So starting tomorrow, passengers on BC ferries will no longer be allowed to remain in their vehicles on the closed decks. It's going to go back to what it was before this pandemic hit, meaning you park your car, you're all in, everybody out and upstairs you go. So that exemption from Transport Canada is expiring, even though the provincial government, as you heard there, has been lobbying to keep it that way. So BC Ferry spokesperson Deborah Marshall joins us now to talk more about this for you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, Deborah. Good morning, Sammy. So what does this mean for people? Is it just completely back to what we used to do? Well, it is, yes. Uh, Starting tomorrow, all passengers traveling on closed car decks are required to leave their vehicles uh, during the sailing in order to comply with Transport Canada's regulation. Uh, Customers on the upper or open car decks are still welcome to remain in their vehicles. Uh, So basically, it affects five of our routes uh, with uh, larger vessels that have an upper and a lower car deck. So that'll be the three routes connecting Vancouver Island to the mainland, as well as Powell River Comox and Tawasin to the Southern Gulf Islands. And what has capacity been like on those routes? Are we going to see now crowding up on those decks? Well, right now, you know, for example, on our major routes, we're down still about 40% uh, passenger traffic and about 20% in vehicle traffic. Uh, What we're also doing, too, on our spirit class vessels, we've had our uh, buffet area closed uh, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're going to be reopening that area for seating only. We're we're not reinstituting the buffets, but we're reopening that for seating, so uh, giving customers uh, more room on the vessel. Right. So given that you will now have more people upstairs how will bc ferries deal with social distancing uh, well, yes, social distancing is still in place. Uh, we, it, we do have a policy now with mandatory face coverings at the terminals as well as on our vessels. Uh, we've got extra cleaning measures in place and whatnot. So uh, we do have measures in place to protect our customers as well as our employees. Is there a little bit of concern, though, Deborah, given that, you know, you've got colder weather coming, meaning people aren't going to be able to just kind of wander around outside anymore either? Well, it is a Transport Canada regulation. They are our regulator, and we do have to comply with the regulation. Uh, And so we're asking our customers, please respect our employees. When our employees are asking you to get out of your vehicle on the closed car deck, uh, we're we're asking customers to comply. Okay, and so that's just the way people are going to have to get used to that, it sounds like, if there's no seating available either. Like, where are people supposed to go? Well, there is lots of seating available on the uh, on the uh, decks of our vessels and whatnot. And, you know, people can still go outside. I, I certainly get your point about the uh, inclement weather coming, yeah. but, uh, you know, sometimes people still want to go outside and get some fresh air. But uh, it is a Transport Canada requirement, and we do have to comply. Okay. And so you said you're still below capacity, though. So what has that been like, trying to get capacity back ramped up again? Is it getting busier? Well, it did uh, get a bit busier this summer, uh, you know, when the traffic uh, started to ramp up. People were traveling more in July and August, mm-hmm. uh, trying to do some staycations and take some summer holidays. But traffic has dropped off again. And uh, after Thanksgiving, I would imagine it'll continue to drop off. All right, Deborah, thank you very much. Thank you.
That's Deborah Marshall from BC Ferries there. So just a reminder, if you do take ferries starting tomorrow, you will no longer be allowed to remain in your vehicle on those closed decks. So in your car, you can't stay there anymore. There had been that exemption issued by Transport Canada at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic to allow for more distancing as well. And that has now been revoked. So it is back to normal. And I could imagine that'll bring a lot of concerns for people on BC Ferries. If you want to weigh in, send me at CKNW. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. BC goes to the ballot box on October 24th, regardless of how you feel about having an election right now. The latest poll out just minutes ago, commissioned by Global News, shows the NDP with a very big lead among decided voters, but... This is BC and things can change. Plus, the number of undecided voters remains larger than usual. Now, we will be breaking down that poll later this hour. But right now, let's chat with John Horgan, leader of the BC NDP, about this and more. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. So obviously, you did a lot of polling here as well. Are you comfortable with where your party sits right now? Well, I'm... uh focus more on how people are doing and uh, i'm certainly uh, i'm pleased that the progress we've made over the past three and a half years but i do know that we have big challenges ahead i think it's undeniable that no one expected to be in a global pandemic in 2020 and we also uh, did not anticipate the uh, the significant challenges not just to public health but to our economy so uh, we have we have some issues ahead of us and work to do and i'm uh, get asking first columbians if they want me to help them get there what have you heard from them in the last week? Like we've been hearing from a lot of people who aren't happy that we're having an election. I, I've heard that too. Uh, I've heard it largely uh, from people who are, are wanting to know why. And when I start to explain to them that, that this, uh, we need an election in the next 12 months. Uh, and during that time, uh, based on all of the evidence, we will still be in a global pandemic. When I explain to them that elections BC has done a very, very good job of making sure we can do this very safely. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 mail-in ballots have already been requested, Simi, and we're just a week in. So I, I think that uh, British Columbians are coming, uh, coming around to this and understanding that, yeah, maybe a stable government uh, and putting the, the election behind us is the best way forward. And, and, and they're also then starting to talk about their concerns around services and, and how do we continue to... Uh, grow our economy? How do we continue to make sure that our kids get the education they need and our, our seniors get the care that they clearly had not been getting uh, for the past 16 years? Let's talk about that big promise then from the BC Liberals yesterday, limiting the PST for one year, cutting it to 3% for the second. Uh, that is a big offer to a lot of businesses and a lot of families, a lot of people who pay the PST. How does the NDP respond to that? Well, I, I look at... Uh, an almost seven to eight billion dollar hole in our budget, and I wonder uh, what services will be dropped as a result of that. I'm reminded of uh, 2001 when then Gordon Campbell, who was uh, advised by Andrew Wilkinson, made massive cuts in taxes for wealthy people, and we are still paying for the consequences of that today. Look, uh, if you have a lot of money, you spend money, and that means you're going to save money because there's no tax. Uh, people that have uh, mixed, uh, fixed incomes or small incomes uh, will not see the significant savings that the Liberals are talking about. So what we've done instead over the past three years is we've uh, systematically chipped away at all of the increases that the Liberals put in place, like doubling MSP, uh, ICBC rates. We've capped and started to turn down the costs of, of BC Hydro. You know, I, I know you know because you covered it so well, the transformation of reducing childcare fees and creating more spaces. And this month, a child opportunity benefit will start coming to families, not just until your kids are six, but till they're 18, because families get more expensive, not less expensive over time. So we've been focusing on directing resources to services for people and reducing costs in a way that makes sense for the, the, those on middle and, and low incomes and, and saying to the wealthy and the well-connected, uh, we're asking a little bit more from you uh, because you can afford it. And something else we've covered a lot of recently has to do with the problems that we're running into at Site C. What is going on there? What, is, what are you going to do to get that under control? 
Well, we've been working. It's a project that we didn't support, as you know. We we came to government and we worked really hard on trying to manage uh, the costs. Uh, it wasn't a project we would have started, but it's one that we inherited. We looked at it hard and we made the decision that we needed to proceed with the project. Four billion dollars was already spent, and as we've gone along with the contractors that were appointed by Liberals, uh, we've discovered that there's some uh, challenges with the geotechnical issues, and we put in place a former public official that worked for the BC Liberals. He was a deputy in finance, a deputy in, in highways, an engineer by training. Uh, he's doing a report right now, and uh, we're expecting that later in the fall, and we'll continue to put the public interest in the front of our decision-making. But again, uh, this, is a, this is a Liberal boondoggle. Uh, the former Premier never told anyone why we were doing it. She just said she was going to get it past the point of no return, and it appears to me at this point anyway she was successful. But Mr. Horgan, you also had an opportunity to cancel this and you didn't. You chose to go ahead with it. So there because is there, there is responsibility here as well for you. Oh, oh absolutely. But I, and I take full responsibility. Uh, Simi, I'm not skirting it. We made a decision to, do, do we put $4 billion in a pile, $4 billion of, of ratepayers' money and light it on fire? Or do we try to find a way to get this built uh, so that we can have clean energy? I mean, hydropower is the cleanest power you're going to find. But there are massive consequences to get there when you're, uh, you're, you're leveling a valley and, and putting up a dam. But, but the project was 25% complete. And I, I think ratepayers uh, said to us at the time, tough decision. I think you made the right call. Here we are now. Uh, we'll make other decisions if we're reelected in the end of October. Uh, but my focus has always been to bring down costs for people and to make sure that we can meet our climate goals, which, again, are uh, continent-leading at this point. Is there a point then with Site C where you could you would commit to potentially cancelling it if you did get too uncomfortable with those costs? Well, we'll have to see what Mr. Milburn comes back with. Uh, I, I know that uh, he's working very hard. He's a, a, a uniquely qualified because of his finance and engineering background. So I'm looking forward to his report. And we'll, we'll uh, certainly make all of that fully public uh, when it's completed, and we'll uh, make a decision at that time should we uh, have the uh, support of the people of B.C. after October 24. You've taken a lot of criticism in the last couple of weeks on the trustworthiness issue because of calling the election and saying that things didn't work out with the Green Party and the agreement that you had. Are you worried that if there's another minority government, would other parties be willing to work with you after what's happened? Well, I, I believe that I've spent the past three and a half years working with people across the aisle, not just in the legislature, but across British Columbia. Uh, I have good working relationships with the business community, with individual leaders of companies, uh, with the labor movement, uh, with regular people, not for profits. I spend my time engaging with people of, of diverse backgrounds, and I've done my level best to earn their trust. Uh, I called an election because I felt it was in the best interest of British Columbians. The situation we are in today was not the situation of 2017. We made great progress with the Greens. So we may well be able to do that again. But my focus right now is saying to British Columbians, we have challenges ahead. I'm going to lay out how we want to deal with those challenges and leave it up to them to decide. Mr. Horgan, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Back to the campaign trail. That is BC NDP leader John Horgan joining us for a chat. The latest poll out this morning from Global News shows that party with a pretty comfortable lead, but there are a large number of people who remain undecided. I called an election because I felt it was in the best interest of British Columbians. The situation we are in today was not the situation of 2017. We made great progress with the Greens, but we may well be able to do that again. That was NDP leader John Horgan. We spoke to him just a few minutes ago, and we talked about that issue of an election. Question being, if you end up in a minority position again, what party would want to work with you, given that there is this idea that you broke the agreement this time around and called the election? So we thought, let's get some response to it. Joining us now is BC Green Party leader Sonia Firstenau for more on this. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Shimmy. Let's talk about what we just heard there from John Horgan. Would it be possible for the Green Party to enter into another agreement like that, or do you feel kind of burned? You know, Simi, I got into politics because I really wanted to protect my community, and I ran for leader because I think we need a different kind of leadership, a different kind of politics in B.C. And when we get on the other side of this election, the one thing that will be guiding any decisions that I make for the first few weeks and the next four years is how does it serve the people of BC? How do we act in government to best protect the security and the safety of people, to best address these crises that we're in, and, and to best ensure that we can make decisions 
effectively and efficiently and be able to move things forward in a way that, that people will be able to see results quickly. And so, you know, I'm solely focused right now on this campaign and very excited about it uh, and what we have to offer to British Columbians. And on the other side, it is the people of BC that will be guiding uh, every decision that I make. And I think that we've for so long we've gotten caught up in this idea that parties are like these clubs and they can never talk to each other and never work together. And we showed over the last three and a half years that that's absolutely not true. But I think what we have to do more of is to say, everybody needs to put their best ideas at the table. Everybody needs to put the people and this province first. And then we need to figure out how we work to, to make those happen. And I, I look to the, the work I did with uh, Adrian Dix and Norm Letnick on the health regulation file where we had a three-member consensus-based committee and brought forward very sweeping recommendations for changes to how we regulate health professionals in BC. And we did that with the public interest, public trust and public safety at the center of everything we did. Let's get your reaction to some of the things from the campaign for the last 24 hours. We heard the BC Liberals make a very big promise of eliminating the PST for one year and lowering it for the second year. What does the Green Party have to say about that? Well, it, it, the the relentless campaign kind of uh, refrain for so many decades has been tax cuts, and yet we look at the services that are lacking in this province. We look at the the lack of affordable housing, the lack of care for people who need it. Uh, our our infrastructure has been falling behind in way too many communities. Uh, what we need is to invest in, in the people and the future of this province. We need to make sure that every child has uh, a safe place to be going to school. Every teacher feels safe in their workplace, that young people have opportunities, that there is uh, early childhood education, that there is training programs. Uh, you know, We have to look at what government's role is. And government's role really should first and foremost be how do we create the conditions for every community and every person to meet their fullest potential. And so for the Liberals to come out now and say we're going to take another six or seven billion dollars out of out of the government uh, ability to be able to provide services and infrastructure at a time when we know economists are saying we absolutely need to invest in getting the economy back, in ensuring that it's an economy that actually serves people, mm-hmm. and ensuring that we don't uh, have uh, the outcomes of this economic downturn be one that is uh, be long-term. We have to invest. And so let's look at ways that we can ensure that we're addressing inequality. Let's look at ways that we can uh, look at government revenue and spending that reaches the outcomes of of not allowing that gap between rich and poor to widen any further. Uh, but again, this is an unimaginative, uh, you know, refrain from the BC Liberals. We, we should be, and we, I'm really looking forward to our platform coming out over the, the uh, upcoming days. Uh, we should be putting real solutions on the table. Listen, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. That is Sonia Fursino, Green Party leader, uh, responding, of course, to the latest events on the campaign trail and uh, looking forward to he- seeing in, in detail all of the party platforms, actually, at this point, none of which has been kind of released in its entirety. That is in the days ahead. What we do have this morning, though, is a better look at how the parties are standing right now. There is a new poll out commissioned by Global News just released about 20 or so minutes ago that shows The NDP with a pretty comfortable lead, but as I said, this is BC politics. Anything can change during the campaign. I'm pleased that the progress we've made over the past three and a half years, but I do know that we have big challenges ahead. That's part of our conversation with NDP leader John Horgan that we had about half an hour ago. You can find it on the Mornings with Simi podcast after the show. We are talking to all the parties this morning. That was John Horgan. We spoke with Sonia Furstenau. We'll be speaking with Jazz Johal, the BC Liberals, coming up as well uh, in the next hour of the show. But let's talk right now about where the race sits for the election here on October 24th. New polling on the provincial leadership race that has been commissioned by Global News and done by Ipsos Public Affairs is out this morning, and we're going to break it down now with the help of Kyle Braid, the Ipsos Senior Vice President. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Boy, these are some interesting results. Break it down for us. Well, it's 
It's nothing like the last election, which was a squeaker the whole way through. Uh, the NDP opens this election way out front with the support of unbelievably more than half the voters. 51% of British Columbians say they'd support, uh, uh, of decided voters say they'd support the NDP today. That's 18 points ahead of the Liberals at 33. Uh, the Greens are at 12 and others are at 4. So it's a it's a large lead and, and, and one that, uh, you know, certainly suggests why we're having the election today instead of waiting till next year. Right. Nothing is a given, though, in B.C. politics, as we know. Uh, let's talk about the number of undecideds. Well, it's big. Um, last election, we had 23% undecided. The one before that, we had 15 or 16. This time, it's 31. So it is a much higher number than we've seen in the past. So if you want a silver lining as a, as a liberal or a green, um, the undecideds are there and, and listening to, uh, to what the parties have to say. And what about any kind of disapproval or unhappiness about the fact that we're having an election? Well, I think the NDP's 18-point lead should be an indication that there's not that much disapproval. But when we ask the straight-up question, do you, do you like having an election or not, it's 46%, so not quite half who say that they disapprove, 32% say that they approve. And the more important question, I think, is the follow-up we asked, which is, you know, is this going to impact your likelihood of voting NDP? And there's really only 15% in our poll who said, you know, I'm, I'm seriously considering the NDP, and this might make me less likely to do so. But it's not enough now to, you know, create a tight race. Does it give you a sense, though, Kyle, that these are the kinds of numbers and polls that perhaps the party had, and that's why they called the election? Uh if they didn't have these numbers, they had other numbers that, that I've seen, and we certainly have polled for, for clients that show the government approval was off the charts at 60% or 70% sometimes in terms of managing uh, COVID, managing you know the economic aspects of COVID. So they've seen numbers that suggest ridiculous numbers of British Columbians are, uh, are, are confident in the job that the government's doing, even if they didn't have numbers that showed that they were you know, politically ahead in terms of votes. Can we talk about regions here as well? Because usually that breaks down by party that you get, you know, Metro Vancouver with the NDP leading, but different in the case of the interior and the north. But what are you seeing? Well, we see the same pattern just with the NDP, you know, further ahead than, than, than they usually are. Uh, on the island where, you know, they, they're usually ahead, they're up by 26 points over the Liberals. Uh, in Metro Vancouver, they have where all the, 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 the seats are that they need to win. They're up by 23 points, which is much bigger than the last election. And even in the southern interior north, where the Liberals won most of the seats last time, at this point we have the NDP five points ahead of the, uh, uh, of the Liberals, which is, is a statistical tie. But, you know, if they're tied in the interior, um, this is not going to be a difficult election for them. And I say that knowing, as you said, things can change real quick in BC. Yes, they can. Okay, let's talk about the issues, though. What did, was there any differentiation in how people felt the issues would be handled by party, or was it one party all the way? <laughs> Pretty much one party all the way. So the top five issues we asked, we asked about a variety of issues, but the top five issues are COVID, cost of living, housing, health, and jobs. And on all those issues, the NDP by a, a decisive margin were seen as better to deal with it. Of course, on climate change and the environment, that's where the Greens do well, and, and they lead on that. The only place that the, uh, the Liberals were even remotely close to the NDP was on the issue of debts and deficit. Uh, but unfortunately for the Liberals, that's not an issue that's of concern to, to many voters. Um, they need to get closer on the economy number, and they're 11 points behind on that issue, which traditionally is you know what the Liberals' bread and butter. Yeah, let's talk about where the concerns are then for the other parties here. Job in the economy, you mentioned government deficits and debt, also always kind of traditional BC liberal territory, but you're saying even in those categories, they're running far behind. They're running, far might be a stretch, but they are certainly running behind and nowhere near where they need to be, which is the, the, clear, uh, the clear winner on those issues. The other issue is, uh, is taxes, which, you know, you saw them uh, make an announcement yesterday. So, uh, the Liberals have obviously recognized they've got a lot of ground to make up and they need to make some bold uh, bold right. moves to move ahead here. And so that's their attempt to come back on the economy and taxes and all those things. Are you going to be polling furiously on that question now, too, to see if that had an impact? 
Well, our next poll will be mid-campaign around times of the debates. It'll be very interesting to see what happens uh, with, with that, uh, that promise. I mean, they had to do something, something big, and, and I think they did. Let's talk about the individuals here, the three party leaders. How do they stack up in public perception? Uh, it's not close, largely, I think, because one uh, is well-known and the other two are not. So when we ask Best Premier, uh, Horgan gets 44%. Uh, Wilkinson gets only 14, so almost uh, 30, 30 points behind. And Sonia Furstenau, who's, who's brand new, only got six. But there are 36% of British Columbians who said, you know, I don't know at this point. So you can either view that as, you know, bad news for the uh, Green and Liberals that they have no profile or as, you know, something that they can build on. And maybe there's some hope that as they get known, uh, their numbers right. will rise. But Kyle, as we know, this is B.C., Right. And things change. Normally, when you do a poll at this point in an election campaign, what like what could possibly change? How much could things change over the life of the campaign? Well, I heard myself saying 18 point lead at the start of this interview. And, you know, I'm not supposed to mention the 2013 election, but uh, the NDP started that election in in most polling with an 18 point lead. So uh, things can change. What's different here is in the past when things have changed, it's been when uh, the provincial government's in power is unpopular and people are considering a change and looking at the alternative. Here, it's completely different. We have a very popular provincial government, so the task in uh, upseating them is uh, is much bigger. Um, so can things change? Yes. It always narrows in B.C. Every election gets closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one probably will as well, but 18 points is an awful lot to make up for a government that's got, you know, 60 to 70 percent approval on the issues that matter to voters. All right, Kyle, we'll be talking to you again. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Simi. Kyle Braid, Ipsos Senior Vice President. Ipsos has a poll out this morning commissioned by Global News on the state of the provincial election campaign. For more, you can check it out at cknw.com. So this is about $1,400 for every person in the province, and we think that's manageable and it's important that the role of government continued during this crisis. That is uh, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson speaking with our Mike Smith yesterday, talking about their BC Liberal promise that was announced. It's been the talk of the provincial election campaign for the last 24 hours, and that is the promise to eliminate the PST for a year and cut it dramatically for the year after to spur an economic recovery. Let's talk about that and more with the help of our next guest. It's BC Liberal MLA and running once again in Richmond, Queensboro, Jazz Joe Hall. Good morning, Jazz. Good morning, Simi. How did the party come to this decision? Because this is a very big offer for the people of British Columbia. Yeah, there's no doubt uh, it is a bold uh, decision. It is a conversation uh, that those developing the policy platform uh, had discussed for uh, a lengthy period of time and uh, came to fruition um, before the election. Um, And uh, we decided it was the right thing to do. We had a significant amount of conversation within those that are developing policy, but also uh, advice from those outside. Um, it, it, it is a significant amount of dollars in regards to what government, uh, when government takes a hit. But right now, it's about helping the average individual uh, get ahead. We have 150,000 British Columbians who are unemployed, um, uh, who were employed in, in January. We have potentially 10 to 20,000 small businesses that may go under by the end of 2021, according to the Business Council of British Columbia. Uh, that's real. Uh, that impacts real communities and people. We've got to make sure people are spending money and have money to spend, one, and making sure that money that is spent to keep some of our small businesses open. And so we felt we needed to be bold, and that's what we came down with that decision. And it impacts all people from, you know, going to the coffee shop to pick up a, a coffee or uh, buying a lawnmower or whatever it may be. It impacts uh, people from all strata of life. Uh, and most importantly, uh, it gives people a bit of hope. Um, this is not going to be permanent. Of course, uh, you know, government still needs to, to have revenue. But right now, the next year to two years, we need to start focusing on economic recovery. Public health and safety is still number one priority, of course. But right now, we've got to make sure people are working and have money in their pockets. Now, not everything is included there. I mean, cannabis sales are not included. Why was that left out? Well, look, I think, you know, the, the impacts, uh, there's been discussion in around cannabis, uh, there's been discussion in around vaping, uh, there's luxury cars that are also not included. We looked at things that impact the vast majority of people, uh, and that's what we wanted to focus upon and making sure our economy move forward. Uh, there's always debates around some of these issues, uh, luxury cars, which, uh, you know, I'm not driving, you're not driving, 
but there's those that do, but it's not a priority for the people of British Columbia. Cannabis and vaping or others that, you know, there's data around health usage and especially around vaping in kids. Um, that's going to stay. Uh, but the broader uh, consumer goods that we buy every single day, like I said, going down to the coffee shop, whether it's the hardware store, if you're perhaps building a home or doing renos and you have to buy construction equipment, uh, that's all going to save some money for everybody along the way and hopefully you know, helps the economy build and helps small businesses along the way. So we try to take a broad approach to all of British Columbia and say, how can we help people? And this interaction that PST you pay happens every single day three or four or five times a day when you pull out your credit card or your, or, or your, or your bank card, this is, a direct, uh, this is direct help to people. Now, what about the idea of the BC Liberal reputation, which has been that of being a fiscally responsible party? Uh, this blows a $7 billion hole into government revenues. Was there not concern about how that would, be, how that would play out? Well, look, we uh, take great pride in being good fiscal managers. Uh, we, we um, In 2017, we had uh, five years of balanced budgets. Uh, when we didn't form government, uh, we left a $2.8 billion surplus. So that certainly speaks to our ability to handle um, government uh, finances. But we're in a once-a-century pandemic, and I'm more worried about people right now, uh, particularly as the federal funding dries up, that people will need help. And on the provincial side, this is one place where we can help right away. Right. What about, paying for the other, what about paying for the other services, though, that the, those government revenues usually pay for? Yeah, and those services will remain. Look, we need health care more than ever right now with COVID. Our kids need to be taught. Education will not be touched. Uh, post-secondary education will still remain and still have all the funding. Social services will still have funding. The reality is most governments around the world are going to be in deficit for the next few years. It is the nature of dealing with a once-in-a-century pandemic. But the, so the priority has to be people. And I'm not too worried about bankers in New York complaining or AAA credit rating right now. Right now, it's about helping the public uh, deal with this crisis that is a public health crisis, but also increasingly is an economic crisis. 150 British, 150,000 British Columbians working in January and are unemployed today. Our unemployment rate has doubled. And what scares me is what's coming down the pike. Those restaurants that we continue to ask people to visit if they have, they have the opportunity, they have thin profit margins already, pre-COVID of 3 5 6%. Um, a lot of them aren't going to survive by next year. And business, business Council British Columbia has already said ten to 20,000 small businesses may go under. Let me ask that should you, be our priority. That's neighbourhoods getting hollowed out. Let me ask you as well about Sightsee, because we did ask the NDP leader about this this morning as well, and that is, will the BC Liberals commit to taking another look at the Sightsee project, given the concerns about the cost overruns and the instability of the project? Well, look, the, the, first of all, the hydro project itself, the, the concerns that have been raised at, at this point that Mr. Horgan was talking to you about uh, this morning, you know, the, the problem was raised way back in December. So we didn't find out about it publicly until there was a submission to the BC Utilities Commission in July. So it's been there for eight months. For Mr. Horgan to say that, you know, they, they just found out is ridiculous. We always have challenges in regards to building large hydroelectric dams, but we've done it very well for 60 years. We have clean um, hydroelectric power in this world. We don't burn coal. We're so far ahead of the world in regards to clean energy. And so to say that we are going to halt this project is ridiculous. Uh, Find what the problem is and fix it. The NDP's core problem is they have not taken ownership of this project. You are in government. You have to make decisions. You take ownership of those decisions. They continue to bash the B.C. Liberals. We got that project off the ground. It's important. We have a population of 2.5 million people in the Lower Mainland. It's going to be 4 million by 2040. We will need one more energy. If every British Columbian today was driving an electric car, we would need two Site C dams. So the demand for hydroelectric power is going to continue. So we need to be updating and providing those resources for British Columbians. Yes, there's going to be other uh, renewables coming on wind and solar potentially. But right now, hydroelectric gives us clean energy and reliable energy. You flick that switch on at home, the lights go on. Sometimes that's not always the case with wind and solar. And we're going to get to the real renewables, and I want to get there myself. But right now, hydroelectric provides clean energy for us, and site seat is needed. But at the core, hydro is, is, is run by the NDP now. They need to take ownership of their decisions to sit around and say, we're going to blame 16 years of mm-hmm. BC liberal governments that continue to get reelected is not the point here. The point is, you as New Democrats now take ownership of this project and the Site C dam, and it's built. And you have to be responsible to the people of British Columbia and get back to the point as to why is this happening, 
How do you fix it? And talk to the people of British Columbia. But for Mr. Horgan to duck and wee, which he's done this morning and he's done previously, is absolutely ridiculous. The problem has been there. It's always a challenge to build dams with our difficult terrain here in British Columbia. But right. we built many of them, and they provided clean energy for decades and decades and decades. So it's time Mr. Horrigan quit making excuses and take ownership. You are running this province. You take ownership of Site C. Okay. Quit making excuses. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, sir. You know, it feels like every election, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal, we talk about the issue of getting young people involved in the democratic process. We hammer that message home, but we also know that we don't have a great track record when it comes to turnout on these elections. Usually it's around 60% of registered voters who turn out to vote in provincial elections. Well, one group is hoping to make voting more of a family activity to make sure people grow up with the message of voting. It is the Girl Guides, actually, and Girl Guides Provincial Commissioner Diamond Dissinger joins us now to talk more about it. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me this morning. So why did the Girl Guides think this was so important to tackle this time around? Well, we have always been passionate about engaging girls in our communities. We have 110 years of history here in Canada, and we have found opportunities for girls to take the lead and for them to be active in their communities, among other opportunities. And so in this election, with record numbers of people especially requesting their at-home voting packages by mail, it seems like a terrific opportunity for parents to engage their kids, especially their girls, in the process. Okay, and how do you suggest that they do that? Well, uh, ballots are being received by mail right now. The last report I saw from Elections BC said that over 406,000 ballots have been sent by mail or requested so far. We suggest that parents strike up a conversation with their kids, really try try to break down the taboos of talking about politics at home. Um, find opportunities to talk about politics around the dinner table, explore news about the election together, whether that's tuning into your uh, radio station, whether that's checking out clips online, finding opportunities for girls to absorb news and information, and really asking girls for their own opinions. Their voices, though they can't vote yet, deserve to be heard and appreciated. And there are tons of opportunities for parents to um, to really hear their, their kids out and make sure that their girls know that this is an important responsibility when they do reach voting age. You mentioned that sometimes politics is a taboo dinner conversation. How do you think parents should work that in? They, you know, maybe they just think the kids are bored by it. Well, I mean, Girl Guides, we work with girls who are ages 5 to 18, so that's a really broad window. Um, by the time girls are nearing 18, they often have a lot of awareness about politics, about government, at least to some degree. Younger girls may not in the same way, but there are age-appropriate ways to broach those conversations, no matter how old your daughter may be, whether it's by talking about issues she already cares about, maybe she's concerned about friends in her community and the supports that they're receiving or protecting the environment or other topics. There are great ways to connect that to politics into this campaign by, for example, when you're watching the evening news together, observing a, uh, a story that relates to a topic that she cares about and talking about how that connects to your own family's values and, and what right. you're most interested in. You know, I was going to say, normally a lot of schools kind of run exercises, but, uh, you know, about elections and voting, and that's difficult to do right now. So do you think parents have to kind of pick up that slack? I think this type of learning, it starts young and it starts at home. Um, Girls take their cues from the role models in their lives, whether those be parents or caregivers or girl guide leaders. I think that we all have a responsibility to make sure that girls feel empowered with knowledge and confidence to be able to move forward as engaged citizens. And I know that in Girl Guides in the coming weeks, uh, as well as year-round, we often do activities related to civic engagement, whether that be volunteering in our community or many groups for example, host mock elections come election time to elect, for example, a mascot for their group or understand how the voting process works. And so those types of hands-on activities uh, are a great way to take sort of more right. complicated concepts and relate them to kids. I guess, And that's good. That's a good point. I was thinking, too, it's just about engaging their curiosity, isn't it, Diamond? It's about getting them to the point where they're starting to ask you questions. 
Exactly. You want your your daughters, the girls in your lives to be curious, to ask questions, to be thoughtful members of their community. And this election is a terrific learning opportunity for them so that when they do turn 18, but even before then, they can make their voice heard in whatever way they so choose. Okay. What about taking kids to vote? I'm a big believer in taking your kids with you when you go vote. Yeah, in normal years, that's a that's a big trend for a lot of parents that they like to take their kids, whether out of necessity because of childcare um, availability or just to introduce their kids to the process. We're still waiting to see what Elections BC's advice is this time around with respect to whether or not kids should be brought to the polls for safety reasons. Right. But given that over four hundred thousand voters so far in British Columbia have asked for an at-home ballot. That's a really safe, easy, in-the-home way to explore this. In your living room or around the dining table, you can take apart the envelope, look at the different parts of the ballot, talk to your daughter about how this all works, and perhaps even enlist her to help you do some research into the candidates and the issues facing your riding. I like it. All right, Diamond, thank you. No problem. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That's Diamond Singer, the Provincial Commissioner for the Girl Guides. They have launched a Vote with a Girl campaign, and that is encouraging parents to get their daughters engaged in the voting process, the democratic process. And certainly, of course, the same applies to your sons too, right? It just happens to be Girl Guides here that are launching this in particular. But yeah, get your kids involved in this. Talk to them about the election, explain the process to them. uh, And that helps them to realize that voting is an important thing they need to do when they get older too. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.